This episode of Driven Minds Podcast is brought to you by Moment of Clarity Eyewear. Moment of Clarity is an online vintage eyewear boutique featuring a curated collection of unworn dead stock and vintage-inspired eyewear. Check them out online at moc-eyewear.com and on Instagram at moc-eyewear. Enjoy the show. Driven Minds Podcast. This is Franz Bowen. This is Trav Weeks. Uh-huh. And with another installment of the Driven Minds Podcast, wanted to say thank you guys for continuing to listen. Absolutely. And uh, thank you for enjoying our uh, our guests. Thank you for that, that girl that freaked out at that event when she, Word. When she saw <laughs> us and we didn't know that people listened to the podcast and she was excited. Fact. You know? But um, mm-hmm. we have a really dope guest. Right. Yes, sir. Uh, Council for Music and Entertainment at Viacom. Mr. Kane Hampton. There you go. Yes, I am happy to be here, everybody. Indeed. What's going on, good brother? How's your day been? Um, it was a stressful day. Um, so one, so one of the things I do in my role is I support MTV, BT, VH1, and Logo mm. uh, primarily. And so I work on unscripted projects, which are reality TV shows, mm. as well as tempos, which are live music events. Mm. Um, and so this is what we consider heavy tempo season. So there's Indeed. every month there's a live music festival happening that I'm working on right now. So. Wow. Fun times because of that. Gotcha, okay. Gotcha. Well, yeah. Let's 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 definitely jump in the pool, Cannonball. So uh, tell everybody, um, you know, what besides, I mean, you did give a example of what you do, but uh, what it is you're classically trained to do, and what falls under your purview. Mm-hmm. Um, so I work on production and development, which are shows that are in production as well as shows that are actually being developed for production. Mm. So a lot of the shows I get to see from the very beginning, like the inception of the idea. So a production company comes to us and say, hey, we, want, they, we want to produce this idea. Um, I work on the show from that inception all the way to carrying it through to production. Mm. Um, wow. And then of course with like the live music events, those things are just in production because most of them are annual, they're returning shows. Um, and what that entails is drafting and negotiating a lot of agreements, um, mm. artist deals. Mm. So negotiating deals with the, you know, whoever the artist is, negotiating with their attorney, um, as well as production services deals. So the production company is actually coming in to produce the project, um, as well as anybody from, you know, the nuts and bolts, like anybody that's working on the production, whether it be a consultant that's writing for the VMAs or whether it be the guy who's operating the crane um, at the BET Awards. Wow. So it's all of those deals that's wrapped into that production. That's dope. So all of this is to you know make sure that everybody's um, when properly compensated and represented um, contractually mm-hmm. going forward. Okay, so um, just really quickly, um, like, can you tell us about the uh, uh, intellectual property landscape right now. Like, what what are some things that um, you know, you've you've been coming up against? Mm-hmm. I mean, we live in a time now where you can be Instagram famous and end up sitting right. in your office like mm-hmm. literally within like two weeks. Mm-hmm. So, what what are some things in in that landscape that you're experiencing right now? Absolutely, and you know, one of the interesting things about my job is that the the 
the level of talent experience that I get to and that I'm exposed to and I get to work with varies so significantly. Mm. You know, I may work, you know, negotiate a deal with an artist who was just founded off of Instagram who because they have tons of following. Um, and then I may at the same time negotiate a deal with Mariah Carey's attorney for production. Um, so I'm exposed to both ends of that spectrum. And so because of that, you realize, you know, the competence of some of the artists that are newly exposed because, you know, they just kind of stumbled into this arena. So they may not always have the safeguards in place, like have the right attorney, have the right um, protection put in place to where they can absolutely advocate for themselves and make sure that their IP is not going to be exploited in the mm -hmm. wrong way. Mm -hmm. um, so one of the things that I'm noticing a lot of times, especially on the music front, mm -hmm. is music not registered. Um, by artists who have been creating music for years, right? Wow. And it's it's really interesting because I have a twin brother and he's an artist. He's a true artist in the sense that he's just always been, you know, right brain and I've always been left brain. Like mm -hmm. he just can paint, he, you know, he did one that was in so many different areas of the art. And so I've always been exposed to someone that's been so artistic and I know that when you're a true creative and a true artist, you don't care about the contracts. Yeah. You don't care about the legalities. You don't think in that mind frame. And a lot of times you don't even care about being compensated for your work because you just want to create. So sometimes you may not even want this infrastructure in place that's going to allow you to be fully compensated because that's just not your area of expertise and it's mm -hmm. uncomfortable to kind of delve into that. Mm -hmm. But that's one of the big things I'm noticing in the music arena is that a lot of indie artists and upcoming artists don't even register their music. And the disadvantage to them on that is if you don't register your music, no one knows who to contact for payment, who to contact to license it. So what you'll find is someone says, says, oh, this song is really hot. I just heard this on Instagram. And then they decide to start using that song, you know, DJing with it or start using it in some other type of uh, right. content. That's interesting because it's almost like, um, you know, I speak to artists too as well too, and a lot of these contracts are, and that's why I give it up to lawyers, man. That coded language, because I've tried. I've yeah. legit tried yeah. to, I think we both tried to like write our own contracts. Right. And I do so Google, quite frequently. Right, Google, Google, <laughs> figure it out. Right. That coded language is ridiculous. Yeah. Now, indie artists now coming, coming up in the game and whatnot, what advice would you give them as far as finding the right lawyer, or mm -hmm. even, maybe not even, if they're not even there to find the right lawyer, mm -hmm. how to protect themselves legally? Yeah. Yeah, you know, one of the probably most unconventional pieces of advice that I would give is something that most attorneys are, I won't say most attorneys, but a lot of attorneys won't give to mm -hmm. artists is find somebody that actually understands what you're doing. You know, it's one thing to say that, oh, I, you know, I understand the legalities that surrounding music, but you got to actually understand the genre of music they're entering into. You got to understand the context and the culture that's wrapped around that type of music, mm -hmm. because that gives not only the attorney context and, you know, you know, some background as to who that person is, who that artist is, but it also lets the artist feel completely comfortable that this person can actually represent me in this arena. Mm -hmm. um, because you, I mean, your attorney especially if you're an up-and-coming artist, mm -hmm. it's everything. Mm -hmm. um, you can have a manager that's out there booking you for engagements, but if every one of those engagements is not properly um, contracted, like if those things aren't, you know, the right terms aren't memorialized in an agreement, you're screwing yourself. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times that comes from just having the wrong representation. I cannot tell you how many times 
some of the, and I'm not going to name any names, but some of the artists who have like the hottest songs of the summer. Wow. Um, and they just have bad representation that doesn't, you know, accurately or at least zealously advocate for their artists. You know, they, you know, they agree to the first comment, never agree to the first term that's thrown out there, never agree to the first amount that is thrown out there in the negotiation. Um, and I see that happen a lot of times in some of the mm -hmm. hottest artists you could think of that have the hottest song, the song of the summer on Billboard mm -hmm. charts. Um, just don't actually have like an attorney that's going to zealously advocate for them. You know, that's a really strong point because hip-hop is a, is a sample-heavy mm -hmm. genre, mm -hmm. you know, and they it's almost like consistently paying homage, right? Mm -hmm. Hip-hop and R&B. So the, when you brought that up, the person that came to mind was Robin Thicke, mm -hmm. you know, um, mm -hmm. with, with the uh, Marvin Gaye estate. Mm -hmm. with, with Which Lines. was a monumental case in entertainment law, specifically within wow. music law, mm -hmm. because the way that the judge interpreted or drafted his opinion and, and applied the Copyright Act was in a way that it had never been interpreted before. Um, he really um, went, to, he actually played the song for the jury pool. Um, and he really went to the essence of what what it sounded like, what the tone sounded like, what the instrument sounded like, and how it was synchronized together. Mm -hmm. um, and it was a big case. You know, you'll find a lot of entertainment attorneys that will disagree with, you know, the way the ruling was made. Mm -hmm. um, I think one of the things he was really interested in was making sure that the gay family estate was really compensated yeah. for the fact that that music was sampled. Right. Um, so whether you agree with him or not, I think everybody can understand the intention, the intentions of the judge. And it, it sets a, a, a different type of precedent Absolutely. too. You know what I'm saying? We're, we're even understanding. So, you know, kind of um, in that vein, for somebody who, well, I'll, I'll give you this portion of the question first. Let's say somebody is a creator, right? Mm -hmm. They made a song and um, they didn't really have the wherewithal. Five years later, somebody you know kind of borrows from it or whatever. Mm -hmm. What are what are some uh, avenues somebody can um, go to to get retroactively compensated or 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 at least acknowledged? Yeah, um, you know it's interesting because you asked what's a route to go around getting compensated and then alternatively being acknowledged. And a lot of times you find that that is the two decisions you have, right? That those are the two routes you have. Is that either or? It's, a lot of times you'll find it's either or. Someone may wow. not wanna you know, compensate you, but they'll say, I'll give you credit. And you know, credit actually translates into monetary value. Right. Because about it. absolutely, you know, DJ Khaled, you know, for years when people would introduce his name as he helped produce whatever the song was, mm -hmm. that was a credit for him. Whether it whether he was compensated, we don't know, right? Whether he was given uh, financial money for actually producing whatever the master recording was, we don't know. But we do know that that credit carried, you know, enough and gave enough leverage where he started, you know, lifting his platform higher and higher because mm -hmm. of that. Um, so a lot of times you got to make that assessment between which one you want if someone is only offering you one of them. Mm -hmm. um, but. You know, one route to certainly is engage an attorney so they can at least send a cease and desist to anyone that's using any of your intellectual property without your permission. Gotcha. That gets the attention of the artist who is using your product, right? And then you can start having those conversations about, well, you should compensate me and this is how much I should be compensated. And there's a lot of factors that go into that. If the person somehow, you know, sold CDs or, um, you know, uh, released some of the music on one of the streaming platforms, you know, you need to see what those figures are. How much did they benefit off of using your own intellectual property so you can actually come up with what that figure should be.
Mm. At, at what stage do, does um, an artist or creator um, bring in an attorney? Like, let's say if they start building on the idea, yeah. they have a brand partner, or they find somebody that they want to distribute the content through. Mm -hmm. At what stage do you say, okay, boom, the creators? Because I put in like in my in um my space, I have attorney or attorneys that I work with mm -hmm. that um you know how I feel like they really should be. Um, um, played out is where it's like let the attorney or whatnot or the deal with that part mm -hmm. of it, the business, mm -hmm. business part of it, and keep the artist in the creative space. Mm -hmm. Do you agree with that sentiment? Also, at what stage should an artist or creator anytime bring in that type of um, legal counsel? Yeah, I do, to your former question, I absolutely agree with that. Mm -hmm. um, I think that it's important that um, you have the creative person and the artist truly within the creative space. You don't want them to have to dabble into the business matters. They should be aware of everything, but you also don't want to put them in contentious situations when they're dealing with another party they have to work with. Right. So if they're if it's an artist and they're working with a producer, you don't want to put them in a position where they're making an offer to the producer how much they want to pay them, and they're trying to get a product completed, right? Because it already creates some contention surrounding the whole creative environment. Absolutely. So it's important to have you know whoever's handling those matters, preferably an attorney, completely handling those things 110. Um, and then, you know, when do you engage that attorney and when do you bring them in? Mm -hmm. It really varies on the type of deal that's happening, but in a general sense, you want to have them part of the conversations in the onset. Mm -hmm. Some attorneys may say, you know, don't pull me in until um, you really know that you want to go through with executing a deal, but sometimes you don't know if you want to execute a deal until you have a full picture of what the legal landscape looks like. So having those conversations with an attorney from the onset, even if you don't have um, anything tangible to discuss, just letting them know, especially if you already developed some type of relationship with an attorney, mm -hmm. just letting them know, hey, this is something that may potentially be coming down the pipeline. Right. Um, Want to give you some context and some background just so you know. Now, at the same time, most attorneys charge on an hourly rate, so I'm not saying, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm not saying time their phone line for three hours, that yeah. may not be to your advantage, like, but <laughs> <laughs> so that may not be to your advantage, but certainly just looping them in early enough to where they can have the proper background before you agree to any Thing that's going to end up being to your detriment. Okay. Absolutely. So my question is, how much of your idea do you own mm -hmm. without paperwork? Mm -hmm. And is I'm sorry. Mm -hmm. How much of your idea that you own without paperwork? So that, that <laughs> that's a very great question, right? Because theoretically, it should be you own 100 percent of it. Mm -hmm. um, but with the with the Copyright Act, especially with like music, for instance. There is no ownership until it's papered. There is no ownership until the music is technically registered, right? But that does not mean that there aren't other avenues that you can prove your ownership. If you had an email conversation with someone, like a, an artist had an email conversation with a producer, those things don't hold the same weight as a contract, but they certainly speak to an agreement being mm. had, right? Um, it doesn't take for you to have, you know, a formal contract with signatures for the for that to be the only way that the court would recognize that you had an agreement in place. Mm -hmm. So there's other ways to show that you have ownership over your project. But of course, the surefire and safest way is to have a contract in place. So how safe is a poor man's copyright? So when I was younger, um, one of my one of my friends told me that yo, if you can't afford a lawyer, what you should do is put whatever, it is, like the song or whatever, mail it to yourself right. and don't open the envelope. How, 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 how clear? I've definitely heard that before. Yeah, I think so. Like, I, 
Yeah, my my boy told me that mad long ago. Like, how 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 solid is that? So when he said mail it to yourself, mail. So like so like say I have a song or uh-huh. whatever, right? And I have it on CD. Mm-hmm. Like put it in an envelope, mm-hmm. stamp it, mail it to myself, but never open it. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of like proof of the date. So 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 it it sounds like this was an avenue before email. Yeah. Probably. So before <laughs> So it, so the rationale behind it actually makes sense because the idea is so you can have a timestamp of when you received the project and created the project. So if someone created and received if someone created the project or somehow got a hold of the project after that date of whatever their postmark was, you have an argument that I created it because I had it first. Mm-hmm. So it, the rationale behind it actually makes sense. That's the same way I always would advise someone, if you don't have a contract in place, what emails do you have in place? Because those emails can have some of the same strength as a contract, not the full strength of a contract, right. but certainly can get you to a memorialized agreement. Mm. Is a verbal. That's really interesting, though. Like, that's, <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's so <laughs> funny sometimes hearing some of, you know, I, I, what I call it's like faux law, right. is what I say it is, mm-hmm. because, like, I, I, the stuff that I hear. Like, I had, I had someone call me one time and say, yeah, your company used my image in the background while the camera was scanning the crowd audience. And I don't want to be paid a lot of money, but I just want to be paid, you know, $2,000 for the use of my image. And she started quoting all Mm. kinds of faux law. Like none of it made sense, right? And so a lot of times you hear, attorneys hear a lot of things like what you're saying, like just kind of some casual conversation about, this is what you should do, you know, poor man's law, right? Right. Like Mm. this is what you should do. Um, and so it's interesting to hear that because sometimes it's rooted in an accurate rationale, but it's like the adaptation of it's kind of like you give it a side eye to like that is not a law. <laughs> well, that's the thing because it's like there's so much that you don't consider because mm-hmm. we're just talking about audio. We're not even talking about mm-hmm. the visual to Absolutely. your point because mm-hmm. when you're doing visual, you got to think about the clothes that you're wearing, mm-hmm. the the building that you're mm-hmm. standing in front of. Absolutely. Somebody who doesn't have yeah. all of those sensibilities. Yeah. Up front, how do how does uh, up and coming artists protect themselves from any type of um, prosecution or what yeah. have you, yeah. um, and and still be able to create as purely as possible? Right. Is there a method? It's 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 a really good question because you know certainly in New York, I think a lot of artists. I, I'm from Texas, and then I went to law school in DC, mm. so my experience, it's like night and day, right? It's <laughs> night and day, right? And so when I first entered into the entertainment area, I worked at a music label in Houston, Texas. Mm. And I worked on the finance side of things before I went to law school. And so my experience has, you know, you know, really been shaped by the geographic landscape of the different places I live in. Mm. But one of the things I've noticed that individuals who create content in New York City have this kind of skewed understanding and perception of what actually has to go through sufficient legal clearance because they see so many things created in New York City, right? Mm. If I want to take out my camera and I want to record, you know, my friend doing some vlog, right, in front of um, Empire State Building. I don't have to clear that is what, you know, is what most people will think or presume. But that's actually not true. You actually have to get permission to film in front of the Empire State Building. You actually have to get the state of New York to approve that filming Mm -hmm. right. Why, you know, this normally doesn't, you know, get to the level, escalate to the level of New York State saying, you know what, this is going to be problematic, they're using it because a lot of those productions don't rise to the level where it's gotten that much attention, Right. right? But if, for instance, uh, what's a show in New York City? Made Manhattan. 
if that show actually went all the way to you know to the box office and they didn't clear those you know to film in Manhattan, then you would certainly hear from New York State saying you have to remove this film. It's wow. it's ridiculous because it's like nobody cares until you start making money. Off. Absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> and the unfortunate thing about that is now you've lost the leverage as the artist or the content creator because you've already used it. You don't want to reshoot it. You're satisfied with the content. And the owner of whatever that is that you need to license and get rights for knows that. So they can put their own price tag on how much they want to clear that for. So they can hack it up. Exactly. So you see that happens a lot of times. It's like an artist didn't compensate um, you know, a producer for a track, you know, whether they had an agreement that, you know, was completely casual, they didn't compensate and they didn't have any acknowledgement on paper that stated that. Right. So now the song is on Billboard Top 100 and that producer is reaching out and saying, hey, I want to be paid something ridiculous like, you know, $900,000 right, for right. the use of, you know, for my, the use of my pr production skills on the track. Mm -hmm. And you lost all of the leverage and that is likely going to be a court case. Yikes. But let's just say they made a verbal agreement. Is that still legally binding if it's not approved? You know, that's not a yes and no answer. Um, you know, it, it would go to, you know, in court, one of the questions would be, were there any witnesses? Did anybody else witness it? Gotcha. You know, and then one of the questions that's going to happen, you know, one of the questions that the judge is going to ask is, well, if there was no agreement in place, why did you continue to work on a project to the mm. producer? Because it, it looks suspicious, right? It seems like there had to have been some agreement in place. So then the question is, what were the terms of that agreement? And that's where you always have the fight is trying to plug in those uh, blank spaces. So cool. Let's get into uh, this is a oh, this is a hopefully this is a non billable. Just real quick, let's, I want to jump into um, public domain. Okay. So we live in a, a, a society that has wholly embraced social media, mm -hmm. and um, you know there there's a lot of things that happen all the time. Like if I've noticed recently that sometimes if I want to add a song to a post, I can't mm -hmm. because Instagram would mm -hmm. be like, "Nah, get out of here with it." Um, what what are some things that people should know about public domain? Um, moving forward yeah. uh, as an artist, as a creative? Mm -hmm. um, I think currently within the copyright law, it's considered public domain for, for music if the music has been published over 100 years. Um, and I may be wrong about that, but I think it's 100 years. Um, so songs like uh, Lift Every Voice and Sing. Beethoven. A, ba a lot of Beethoven music would be considered in public domain. So if you wanted to, you know, create an Instagram video and place one of those songs on an Instagram video, Instagram isn't going to remove that. It's not going to take it down. Because once it is public domain, it's kind of like fair to everyone to reach and, and access. Um, and so because of that, you know, that that is a safeguard for actually creators. And the idea of the Copyright Act, you know, it's interesting because... Our copyright act was, you know, enacted in the 70s, 1976. Mm. And so when you think about all of the inventions that have taken place since the Copyright Act took place, right, since it was enacted, social media hadn't been invented, the World Wide Web hadn't been invented. So there are a lot of things that weren't even contemplated mm. when the Copyright Act was enacted. Mm -hmm. So we do have some updates to it, and we do have a case of law surrounding the Copyright Act that does allow content creators to have some flexibility 
one of those things is, things is the fair use defense. The fair use defense, and, and you probably heard some adaptation of this casually, um, but it basically says that if you're using the content in one of these five ways, one of the ways being it's newsworthy coverage. So you think of like The Daily Show, you think of like SNL. Mm. Um, chances are when SNL is covering something that happened in the news, for instance, like what happened at Starbucks recently, right? right, right. When they use the Starbucks logo in that commentary, in that conversation, they're not licensing that. So they don't have to go to Starbucks for approval on that. Mm. And it's because it reaches within one of those factors of it being newsworthy commentary. They're commenting on it. Um, a, some social issues surrounding it. So the fair use defense was a way to actually give creators a way to still use content without at the same time um, not, you know, overly infringing on someone else's rights. Gotcha. Definitely. Um, I, we got to get into how a black man from Texas <laughs> becomes an attorney mm -hmm. working with all these major brands. Yeah. First, how did you even know you wanted to be in this career field? I didn't know. Um, you, like I said, so when I graduated from undergrad, I graduated with a finance degree. Mm. And I worked as a financial analyst for three years. Wow. And um, the first company I worked at post-graduation was AIG. And now, if you can think about anything that was going on at AIG yeah. circa 10 years ago, yeah, it was, um, it it was uh, tied around the corporate bailout, yeah, you know, yeah. when President Obama was in office and AIG had been given all this corporate bailout money and they misused a lot of the money and wow. misused a lot of the money by giving um, vacations, labor vacations for some of the executives and all these things in place. So the result of that was um, I knew that my department, a lot of us were going to be laid off. Um, before I got laid off, um, I went to a Kanye West concert, oh, and I. Are you sure you want to go there? <laughs> <laughs> this is this is old Kanye, so it's okay. <laughs> All right, we good. We good, y'all. We good. This is old Kanye, so it's okay. And at, at that concert, um, you know, uh, I had I had a friend who worked for a music label. Um, Dominique Richards and she worked in operations um, she worked right directly under the COO at that label that label happened to be Music World Entertainment and mm. Music World Entertainment is the label that Beyonce released her first solo project from mm -hmm. so really interesting time during music and specifically for that label because you know we all look at Beyonce knows as where she is now and when you think about you know the you know the anxiety that had to be surrounded the releasing of her first solo project yeah. because she was part of a girl group. Yeah, yeah. Um, and you don't know what the success is going to be, how yeah. people are going to receive her, how consumers know. are going to like her. Mm -hmm. So the COO of that label, the chief operating officer, John Cawley, um, I met him via the introduction from uh, Dominique Richards, and he was interested in bringing someone on to work in their finance department as a senior financial analyst. And so that was presumably probably a week before I would have been laid off um, mm. at AIG. And so I took the opportunity, he offered me the job. I took the opportunity um, and I was working specifically on a lot of uh, projects that were going towards distribution. So a lot of music that was about to be published and sold. Um, and uh, Music World Entertainment had distributed a lot of artists' content. Shaka Khan, Johnny Cash. Um, they really, uh, Mario, a lot of artists that were really hot during that time. And so I got to work on like a wealth of projects, but I worked very closely with the attorneys. Um, and I remember sitting in a meeting one day and saying, 
I want to think how those guys think, mm. like the way they would work through these problems and work through some of the issues that be presented um, and using their legal training to do so. Mm. And so I went to law school. Um, after working there, um, I went to law school um, in D.C. And when I went to law school, I still wasn't sold on entertainment law. I thought it was like, a, you know, it was interesting. There was something about it that was tugging at me. Um, and like I said earlier, my brother's super right side of the brain, my twin brother, and I'm left side of the brain. So he's always been a super creative one. So, it, you know, there's always been these kind of like tugs at me to do something creative. Um, and so went to law school and I still was dead set on practicing like financial services law. Or corporate finance law mm -hmm. because I was like oh this is a good way to merge my finance background with the law and then um, I met someone who worked at BT networks um, and it was just so serendipitous because it ended up being um, someone that I had crossed paths with before via email interesting enough and this is how incestuous the music industry and the entertainment industry is at music or entertainment um, the winner from BET's gospel show, Sunday Best, whenever the, whatever, whoever the contestant is that win, um, would, get, would sign to Music World Entertainment um, as their label home. Mm. And so I was developing a lot of financial analysis for this project. And so I was in conversations with a lot of people at BET Networks at that time, um, but on the finance side. And one of the individuals who I was in email dialogue with happened to be the GC at BT Networks at the time. Mm. And so I ended up meeting him at like a legal forum, um, not realizing this was the guy that I had been talking to all this time until he said his name. Um, and then he said his name and I ended up getting an internship with BT Networks and the rest was history. Wow. wow. That's funny. Yeah. <laughs> and that was my that that was my true introduction into like really the substantive area of entertainment law. Absolutely. So um, do you love it? I love it. I love it. You know, one of the really cool things about my job is that, you know, I work on a lot of areas considered new media, um, which is like social media, you know, Snapchat and um, Facebook and Instagram. And so what makes that really cool is that I'm getting to work at the, you know, the onset of a lot of this. And so we're coming up with best practices on how to use some of these platforms. Right, right, right. You know, Snapchat, for instance, we have a channel on Snapchat where Snapchat uses or has some of MTV's content. And what what's interesting about it is Snapchat is now operating as the network and we're operating almost as the production company. So you remember wow. the show Cribs? Yeah. yeah. So we revamped Cribs and Cribs only airs on Snapchat. Wow. And so it's cool because it's it's not a traditional model for TV. So I get to work on a lot of these things, and we while we're coming up with the best practices on how to deal with it. How do we deal with Facebook streaming? How do we deal with you know Facebook Live, Instagram Live, and coming up with some of those policies? So it's really interesting time to work in entertainment law, specifically um, any intersection with technology. Now that's interesting. So there's something like, do you have to, especially with these new trends in like mm -hmm. media landscape? Mm -hmm. Are you learning as you're going or how to, you know, um, learn the relationship between like law and these new trends mm -hmm. or do you have to like go back to school and take a course or anything because it's so fresh yeah. and it's consistently evolving, Right. how are you, you know? That's a good question, you know, you, it, it's, it's, it's a yes to both of those in the sense that we do have to take courses that keep us updated on the legal landscape of things, but that's why I think that, you know, Millennials, you know, millennials get such a bad rap. Right. 
But you know, millennials are really at an advantage when it comes to any type of job that has an intersection with technology, any career that has an intersection mm. with technology, um, which is almost every career now, Absolutely. because we fully understand technology in a way that our predecessors did not Absolutely. and still don't. Mm. So a lot of times you'll find yourself, you know, no matter what field you're in, if it's engineering, if it's um, you know, any, any any company that has some type of technology interface, a lot of times, you know, you'll find younger people training older people on how to handle certain things. Right, um, right. And that's because our familiarity with technology, we kind of grew up around it. it. It's it's not foreign to us, no matter what the platform is. So it comes in handy that I know how to work Instagram. I know how to work Snapchat. I know how to work Facebook, right? I understand when there's a new feature being updated because my friends and my peers are talking about it, or I get the updates pushed to my phone. Um, but also, we do have continuing legal education courses that help us to understand what the law is saying around those things, um, specifically if there's any updates in the law, if there's any court cases that have trickled down that we should be aware of. Who do you look up to, like? In your career, in your space, who is somebody like, you know what, because you've ascended, yeah. at this point, who are you looking at? A lot of people, you know. Um, I certainly say that I stand on the shoulders of so many giants um, because there are so many um, minorities that have paved the way for me to work into this space and, you know, actually allow me to get a voice in the room a lot of times. You know, we look at a lot of stuff that happens in media um, that is so questionable. Like one of the things coming to mind is the Pepsi ad, with you know where they made a you know a social a social justice protest look like a Coachella ad, right? Um, with Kendall Jenner, you know, a lot of these things happen, right? You know, the H and M ad where you had um, the young um, African American kid, or I think he was, a, I think he was Nigerian, yeah. the young Nigerian kid wearing a shirt where he said mon something like "monkey in around" or something cool, like that. Cool. You know, exactly. I think the Heineken was the worst. Or, or the Heineken one, right? Where they said "lighter is better." It was like <laughs> it passed all the dark skin. Yeah. I'm like, how did nobody? Yeah, and 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 so I think it's so important to have true diversity in the room right. um, and a lot of times that is so absent and so you know I, I have been blessed to work at a company that has diversity initiatives and care about those things um, and one of my friends who works for Eli Lilly always says you know one of the best things his mentor told him was go where you're appreciated mm -hmm. and celebrated not where you're tolerated absolutely mm -hmm. um, and I think cool absolutely and I think that is so true so I can't, I can't like single out someone particularly that I really look up to. It's just so many people who have like paved the way for me and so many people that have, you know, really made me feel comfortable enough to work into um, this space that I work in because imposter syndrome is real. You know, there's moments of insecurity that everybody has where you're questioning, do I know how to do this? Like even today there was um, a, a, a sponsorship and integration deal that I executed and it was a two million dollar deal and you know there's a moment like after you finish drafting it that you like dust your shoulders off and you're just like i, I wrote that i did that <laughs> I, did that. I, that. I did the negotiation yeah. for that nice. um and so those are those are like the moments that it feels really good and it reminds you that you know you really have an opportunity that some people didn't have always yeah. have Good. So um, before we uh, wrap, I just wanted to ask this question for individuals who can't really retain the, the services of somebody that's talented. Mm -hmm. Where can somebody go to, um, you know, educate themselves 
uh, on you know intellectual property law, at least the the bare minimum, so they're at least protected. Where are some uh, sources? Yeah, one of, one of the first ones that come to mind is an organization that I truly believe in and I have volunteered with is Volunteer Lawyers for the Arts, okay. um, also VLA. Um, is the acronym, but they really provide a lot of good legal services to artists who can't pay for, you know, the top dollar lawyer. And a lot of those attorneys that are volunteering for VLA are attorneys that work at big law firms, wow. work at companies like me. I volunteered with them before, and they provide true legal services for you um, at a super discounted rate. Like you just have to join the organization VLA, um, and that's one that comes to mind. But there's, I'm sure, there's tons of others out there. But they're, they're a really good place to go if you need adequate representation. And like you just need some legal advice. Cool. And um, what, one of my last questions too is, what are some things that somebody should look for in an agreement? Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, there's there's a sword in the shield, right? right. Like there's, right. there's the company side mm -hmm. and you'd write it accordingly. Mm -hmm. But but for, for, for like the shield side, like the, the mm -hmm. artist side, what are some things that, or that somebody should look for, like red flags that mm -hmm. they should um, protect themselves against? Yeah, you know, a lot of times the first thing an artist is looking for is the compensation provision. Like, just making sure that the money is in line. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. how many how many days after I sign this agreement am I going to get Do my check, yeah. right? But there's so many other things that matter. Um, and one of them is the rights that you're granting. Um, mm -hmm. You know, what kind of rights are you granting? How broad are the rights, you know? And one of the things that a lot of people are seeing, you know, in conversations now are the third party rights that you're granting, which mm. means this individual who you're contracting with, can they do anything with your IP after that? Can they also then extend those rights to a third party? And a lot of boilerplate contracts have that in there. Um, so you want to strike that out <laughs> unless you're going to be additionally compensated for a third party also coming in and using your content. Because your joint could come out in Spanish and yep. it's, it's a wrap for you. Yep. Like. And you had no participation in yeah. it. And that sucks. <laughs> all right, cool. Um, you know, Driven Minds, and we ask all our guests this question um, what drives you? What gets you up in the morning and gives you that gusto to go? Yeah. Um, definitely being able to help others. Um, mm. And, you know, in my job now, there's not a lot of uh, quote unquote, like community service and community, community advocacy that I get to do. Um, so I do a lot of that outside of my job. Mm. Um, and that's what really drives me, you know, having a, doing this podcast, like with the, with the idea, hopefully that somebody's listening to this and I've gave some good enough advice um, that they're gonna know how to move forward with, you know, moving their content around. Right. So. You, I mean, you from Houston, so I thought you would said barbecue, but... <laughs> guess that's well, what <laughs> well, well, we have to specify that if I do say barbecue, it's Houston, Texas barbecue, mm. right? Right? Talk because I know, I, know, I know my colleagues in North Carolina and my peers in Memphis yeah. may say they have the best barbecue, but they absolutely do not. <laughs> so let's be clear about that. So, where can we uh, find you on the socials if somebody wanted to uh, slide in that DM? <laughs> uh, Instagram handle is KJ Hampton and Twitter is Kane Hampton. Really simple. Awesome. Dope. Dope Fire podcast. Man. Yo, Kane, thank you so much for Kane coming through and uh, <laughs> giving us this, this wealth of you know, wisdom. I, I hope it goes to the furtherance of somebody's career. Facts. Like we always say at this time. Stay driven. Stay driven.